Then in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the name of the virgin was Mary. And upon entering, the angel said to her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she had heard this, she was disturbed by his words, and she considered what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father, and he will reign in the house of Jacob for eternity, and his kingdom shall have no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how shall this be done, since I do not know man? And in response, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will pass over you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And because of this also, the Holy One who will be born of you will be called the Son of God. And behold, your cousin Elizabeth has herself also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who, will, who is called barren. For no word will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, y'all. Uh, it's my pleasure to be able to share with you a word uh, for the fourth week, weekend of Advent. Um, and this weekend, our theme is, uh, as you probably know, our theme is love. And for a lot of different reasons, I feel supremely unqualified to talk about love. But um, I hope that I can offer some kind of reflection uh, that uh, helps us maybe remember um, God's love for us and what that looks like. So I'm going to begin, actually, just with a series of uh I'm going to give you three um, just really brief reflections on uh, three interpretations of this thing we call love. Um, the first one is, I don't know if you have ever heard of a, an author by the name of Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, he is, uh, in 2017, I believe, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, he is a British author, and he wrote a book called The Buried Giant. Um, if, if, you, if any of y'all have read it, uh, you may know what I'm talking about. If not, um, it's a book that I think is, that is very central to my life. And uh, it's one that uh, I hold dear a lot. And so, one, so what I want to introduce to you, first of all, is this idea of love, first of all, as long-suffering or co-suffering. The Berry Giant um, is about an elderly couple uh, which is which is a very interesting setting. It's set in post-Roman Britain. Um, as you know, like uh, what the area we call, you know, England and probably part of Wales uh, used to be part of the Roman Empire. But when the Roman Empire began to lose their grip over their outer territories, um, 
it sort of a lot of different things began to happen. First of all, the Britons are a Celtic people that the Romans conquered. And then, um, but after, after the Romans began to leave, you began to see an influx of Germanic peoples, uh, especially the Saxons. And this is set in a world in which um, these Saxons and these Britons have been in conflict for many years now. Now, now there's a little bit of a fantasy element here. Um, there is a mist that has fallen over the land. And because of this mist, people can't quite remember anything really. And this elderly couple, uh, one day they suddenly remember that they have a son and they, they tell each other, look, we haven't seen our son in ages and he's probably waiting for it. And you know, we just have the sense that he's waiting for us somewhere. So let's go find him. I think, you know, I don't know, we don't know exactly where he is, but I think we have some sense of where he is. So they begin, they embark on this journey to go find their son. And now the, without giving too much away about this book, um, one of the central questions that are raised in this book is, can love exist without memory? And uh, conversely, can love exist despite memory? Um, because these two, this elderly couple, they have very spotty memories about how they spent their youth together or how, um, and they have, they have conflicting memories about uh, what happened when. And without that memory of time spent together, um, how, do they, how can they actually truly confirm the nature of their love? But conversely, the memory also brings up memories of hurt. And when their memories actually come back and when this mist over the land has been um, lifted, can they still affirm a love for one another or will the hurt break them apart? And I'm just going to share you one passage from this book that I think is very instructive of, uh, I guess representative of what this book is talking about. Um, one of the main characters uh, towards the end of the book, um, he's explaining to somebody else the nature of his relationship with his wife. He says, God will know the slow tread of an old couple's love for each other and understand how black shadows make part of its whole. So there is this in this book a hope of healing and a desire and a hope for restoration, um, even despite these shadows that exist in the back of the back of our memories. That's one. So that's the first example that I'd like to leave you with. The second is this idea of love as attention. Um, a number of authors have raised this idea. But uh, particularly recently, um, I have read this uh, in an author by the name of Janet Martin Saskis, um, who's a theologian. Now Saskis, um, she, she tells us that love is both fully embodied. It's not something that sort of exists in our mind somewhere, but it's something that is, it exists both in our body, but it's also perfectly rational. In other words, it's, voluntary action based on our choices and our beliefs, but it's also involuntary to some degree. And she gives the example of a mother and a newborn baby. 
the the kind of love that a mother shows to a baby is attention to a changing target. A newborn needs milk at first, but then maybe that child is cold. And maybe then the child needs to be taught that it's dangerous to touch fire. And then as the child grows up, um, he or she needs to be taught to be courteous to the grandparents. As the child grows, a mother, the mother or the parents' beliefs become more beliefs that guide their actions become more complex, and that in turn leads to more complex actions. And the way Dr. Soskis puts it is that our affections are continuous with our highest beliefs and values. And similarly, God has attention to the particularities of human life. God Himself is eternal and unchanging. But because, because God is eternal and unchanging, God is present to all and to every time. God is not simply removed from this world, like transcendent in the sense of somewhere else, but God is with us and attends to each changing thing. So love is attention. That's the second idea that I will leave you with. Now, the third, I, I I'd like to draw a little bit from some of my own personal experiences. And this is, I think, maybe a little bit more intuitive or obvious to some of, to mo actually most of us, um, is love is giving. And uh, my own experience of, um, my probably one of my greatest experiences of love was when I had the opportunity to become a teacher. Um, my occupation before coming to uh, Durham and to Duke Divinity School was as an English teacher in Japan. And now it was not a standard like public school type of setting. It was a little bit of an extracurricular type of program, but never, nevertheless, I had, I had classrooms of maybe 10 to 15 kids, um, you know, five, six classes a week. And I would see these kids once a week. Yeah, I would see each of my uh, students once a week. And one of the really deep joys, I think, of teaching is that it, it gives you a very specific context. You can't do everything. You can't give everything in that context. You have a specific role. You have a very specific relationship with your students that's appropriate. But within those boundaries, I, I am called to give everything that I have, everything that I know, all the, all the love through uh, expressed creative, creatively through those boundaries that we have. And I always sought to um, model something for my students that, was, that can be imitated, however imperfectly. Um, you know, these were, they, these were all language students and they're all studying to get into probably better schools or something. And my mission there always though was, you know, I always had a, one of the values that I had was for them to always keep in mind that, you know, um, getting into a better school or um, scoring, getting a high score on some kind of English test or even just doing well in school was not was not the final end and there's a life that goes beyond that but that but on on that path this step was still meaningful 
And so I all, I mean, even though I failed in a lot of different respects during this job, I always tried to model some kind of stance of constant learning, um, always trying to improve what I am doing, just as the, my students are always being called to improve their English. Um, I made a lot of mistakes in class. I've said some wrong things in class. To have the humility to apologize for those mistakes in front of these uh, cheeky fifth graders, which who, who will sometimes not be totally apologetic about taking you down for them. <laughs> and uh, trying to disconnect even with the, disrupt, the so-called disruptive students and trying to find ways to help the struggling ones. Now, um, now that's sort of a, you know, arguably though, you know, I had, I was in a very privileged sort of setting. I was protected in a lot of different ways. Um, and so this is, I, I consider this a very small a glimpse into, I guess, the largeness of the love that we experience as human beings. Now, going back to something that um, Dr. Soskis was mentioning about the, the love of a mother, I once had a debate, um, as I've mentioned before, probably, uh, my family is not Christian. Um, I'm probably the only one, except for maybe one great aunt in my family. I once had a debate with um, a great uncle of mine on my mother's side of the family. And uh, he, he was trying to tell me that, you know, a mother's love, uh, specifically my mother's love for me, <laughs> was greater than God's love. And uh, of course, on intellectual grounds, I completely disagreed with this. And yet there is something that I, there is something about where he is coming from that I cannot ignore. And that is that there is a reality that my mother gave a lot to me when I was a child. I'm an only child. Um, for better or for worse, that means that all the attention of your parents gets directed to you. It is a very, it is a privilege that not everybody has. Um, it is also, it can be felt to be a burden at times. But we had an interesting dynamic between my parents and it just ended up that my mother gave a lot of her time, energy, and money um, for my education, especially. Um, she was the one who cooked all my meals. She was the one who cleaned the house. But she was also our main source of income. And she drove me to school. And so, and as I grew and changed, she exhibited a lot of this attention, this attentive love. Um, as I grew as a student, she tried to find better places for, for me to spread out my wings a little bit. As I grew as a violinist, she would try to find better teachers for me or more opportunities for me to enter competitions or to, practice, or to play with uh, people who were played at a higher level. And so because of all this, um, I've had a kind of a fraught relationship with my mother um, as I suppose many children do. And I just remember distinctly the first sermon I ever heard, which actually spoke to me, was at a church that I went to when I was in an undergraduate. And it was on Mother's Day. And the pastor spoke from John 19, uh, where Jesus was crucified. And if you recall, in the Gospel of John alone, there is this very brief passage 
where it says Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loves standing beside her. He said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And now it's very difficult for me to explain in what way exactly logically this spoke to me. But that was the moment I remember very clearly, although I didn't confess my faith in Jesus Christ at that time, that was the moment when I was convinced of two things, that one, that I was, I was indeed a sinner, and that two, that Christ had indeed died on my behalf. And now I want to wander a little bit, wander and wonder, I guess. Um, that seems to be one of the themes this week. So, and what I want to wonder now is, I, I, did Mary ever imagine that she would be giving her own son for our salvation? You see, when Mary received the Holy Spirit, in some senses, she foreshadowed her son's passion. Now, if you recall, after the angel Gabriel speaks to her, she responds by saying, let it be with me according to your word. Later on in the gospel of Luke, Christ prays in the garden of Gethsemane. Remember those very famous words where he prays to the father, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is what Natalie Carnes calls Jesus' imitation of Mary. Jesus is the son of God, but as a human being, he is also the son of Mary. Also, remember that um, when, the, when Gabriel first speaks to um, Mary, he mentions Elizabeth. Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And when I hear this, I can't help but think of someone else who was also barren, who, didn't, who was without child, or was given a child. Yes, I'm talking about Sarah, right? Uh, from Genesis. And Sarah was given a child, um, a child she and Abraham named Isaac, which means he laughs. But do you also remember what happens to Isaac right after he was born, right after this joyful moment of a miraculous child being brought to life. Remember, Mary begins her answer to Gabriel by saying, here I am. This is echoing uh, one of the typical answers of the patriarchs when, the, when God calls upon them specifically when God calls upon Abraham, and I'm reminded of that time when God calls Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. And then God then proceeds to tell him to take that son, that son whom you love, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice to God. And just as Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, Mary receives a son whom she must give up on the cross. Could she have imagined this? When she offered 
one of the greatest doxologies to God in all of scripture, did she imagine that this son that she is going to receive, she would have to let go so that he can be crucified by her own people on the cross. This, it's hard to go anywhere from here, <laughs> from here to something about God's love. All this really speaks to, to me is the pain of human experience. And I imagine though I have no experience to speak to it, the experience of any parent who has lost a child. So we're told in the gospel of John that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, some people here might wrestle, have to wrestle with what seems like almost God's selfishness. God, sure, it's God's only begotten son, but it's also Mary's son in this world. And how is it that that son can just be taken away so that other people can be saved? Is that justice? But maybe, I think, just maybe, there is another way of looking at it. Because conversely, it's not just Mary's son. But it is. But Jesus is the son of God. And because Jesus is the son of God, it is God entering into all of human experience. It reveals God's attention to the particulars of human life. Woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. God coming into each and every pain of the human experience. And so when Isaiah prophesies about Emmanuel, right? God with us. I can't help but think, yeah, God indeed is with us. And somehow it almost seems like God, this this prophecy isn't, you know, isn't even like a prophecy per se. Um, it doesn't really like, it's not, it's most certainly, you know, it's not, it's a little bit predictive, I suppose. It predicts something about something that, that God, some kind of action God is going to do in the future, but it almost seems to be pointing out something that is, should be obvious, but something we forget a lot. When we look at the story, the arc of scripture, we notice that even in exile, God is still with his people. Even if God is angered, that God is deeply wounded in some sense by his people and turns his face away, he never completely abandons them. We notice, we remember through the, the hymns that we sing that God's promise to David never dies. God's promise to David that his line will reign forever on the throne. It lives in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, in the Son of Mary. On this final, ad, final Sunday of Advent, I'd like for us to remember that Son whom God did not spare on the cross. God is with us. Remember that our bodies are a temple. Christ's body is a temple. The temple is a dwelling place of the spirit of God. Remember that if you've been looking at the godly play videos at all, 
you you take you um you put out the candles we while the candle is lit you can see the light but when you put it out you can't see it as well but that doesn't mean there's nothing there that scent that smoke that presence permeates the room and it's still there so we have access to god and christ and allow me to end with a prayer from Ephesians 3:14 to 19 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name I pray that according to the riches of his glory he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, allow me then by offering us a prayer. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have reached the fourth weekend of Advent by your grace. And today we, we stand or sit or lie down, gathered together here as a church, your body, which you have broken for us. Lord, we, th we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on your love, the long suffering that you go through for our sake, the patience that you um, exhibit towards us so that one day, one of these days, even if it's not today, one of these days we will go look back and see all those dark shadows in light of the son whom you have sent to us. Lord, we thank you for your attention and your presence with us. We are changing beings unlike you, Lord but yet you can still be with us somehow in that change and be attentive to every detail. And you can still give us what we need. You still can meet us where we are. And Lord, we, we, we thank you that you have given us the ultimate sacrifice, that you have given us your only begotten son, that you have entered into the human experience with us and that we may now have a way to have relationship with you, Lord. We thank you for all these things as we await the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for all these things in his name. Amen.